And our scripture text for this afternoon is Deuteronomy 4, 15-19. Hear now the reading of God's Word. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So far the reading of God's holy word, may He add His blessing to the preaching of it this afternoon. I think a bit of review is in order. We have learned that the second commandment is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. We have learned what this commandment requires. The second commandment requires the receiving, observing and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in His Word. And we have also made the observation that while the first commandment teaches us who is to be worshipped, God alone is to be worshipped. The second commandment tells us something about how He is to be worshipped. God not only has the right to be worshipped, but to tell us how He is to be worshipped. And two main principles may be drawn from the second commandment, which we are now considering. One, it is God who determines how He is to be worshipped and not man. And So think of it again. This is review still. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, etc. When God says that... He is claiming the right to be worshipped on His terms, and not on our terms. And this is a very important principle. We are to worship God alone, and we are to worship Him as He has revealed to us in His Word. Two, we see clearly that God is not to be worshipped by images, or with the use of images. And both these principles are contained within Baptist Catechism 56, which says, "...the second commandment forbiddeth the worshipping of God by images." or any other way not appointed in His Word. And so why are we forbidden from worshipping God using images? That's the question I would like to turn to now. Why are we forbidden from worshipping God using images? I suppose the most simple answer would be because God said so. And that answer would be correct. It would be sufficient, in fact. But I think we can say more. Why no images? And the answer is because God is a most pure spirit. He is invisible. He is infinite. There are no boundaries to God that lines on a paper or edges to a sculpture could accurately represent. An image, no matter how grand, no matter how beautiful, is incapable of communicating the truth regarding God, who is boundless. Every image made of God would be a lie, therefore. This is what Deuteronomy 4, 15-19, which we have just read, warns against. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, etc. This Deuteronomy passage is warning us about making 
images, trying to make an image of God himself or, or forming an image of something of this, this created world in order to represent God. He's forbidding images altogether because God does not have a form. He is a most pure spirit. He is infinite. He does not have lines or boundaries to him. He's not confined to a particular place. Therefore, we are not to reduce him down to an image ever. You will notice that all images are forbidden in that Deuteronomy 4 passage. The people of Israel were warned against making any carved images in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, etc. In other words, they were forbidden from attempting to make an image of God and they were also forbidden from making images of created things to represent God. Uh, This might remind you of that episode of the golden calf. The Hebrews had barely escaped the Egyptians when they, with Aaron at their lead, Moses was up on the mountain, remember, they gathered gold together and they made a calf to bow down to it. You remember how that turned out for the people of Israel. And I do not doubt that they wished to give worship to the God who had redeemed them, that is to say, the one true God, the God of Israel. But where did they go astray? They went astray in that they they made an image. They made an image to represent Him. Surely they knew He was not a calf. He did not look like a calf. But they wanted something that they could see, something that they could bow down before they made an image. And it is somewhat understandable, isn't it? These people were raised in Egypt. This is how the Egyptians worshipped. And so this is how they wished to worship. Their actions were understandable, but they were of course inexcusable. For the God of the Hebrews was the one and is the one true God. He is a most pure spirit who is invisible and infinite. And they learned this lesson the hard way. I have already warned you in previous sermons of our propensity to worship the creation rather than the Creator. We are prone to do this. It is so easy for us to begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. That is clearly forbidden in the first commandment. But here the warning is a bit more nuanced. Not only are we forbidden from worshiping the creation instead of the Creator, we are also forbidden from worshiping the Creator with images of created things. So, I will return again to the question, why? Why no images? The answer is because all images of God, or all images used to represent God, are a lie. They are incapable of telling us the truth about Him. They portray God as physical when He is truly spiritual. They confine God to a locality when He is in reality omnipresent. Images limit the one who is infinite and beyond measure. In brief, images make God small in the hearts and minds of those who see them. They bring God down and make Him an object that can be manipulated and controlled by the hands of men and formed according to their wills and imaginations. Some may push back against this teaching, saying, But the artist knows that God is not really bound by the image. And the worshiper also understands that these are merely representations of the Infinite One. And I would reply to that by saying, Do they? Do they understand this? And the question is not so much what the artist understands, but what the artist communicates to others. Will future generations understand when they run to images rather than to the Word of God to understand the truth regarding who God is? Will they get it? No, I think these images will have a very negative impact upon others, upon future generations perhaps. God will be made small in their minds. 
And be sure of this, people will certainly run to images and not to the Word of God if they have the choice. The images appeal much more strongly to our fleshly desires than God's Word does, apart from the grace of God. Images appeal to the mind of man, for an image can be understood. Images appeal to the heart of man, for an image may be crafted to suit one's desires. And images may appeal to the will of man, for an image is under the control of man. We are able to manipulate it, take it where we wish, and use it as we wish. But the God who has revealed Himself in history and in the Scriptures is beyond our comprehension. He claims lordship over us. He demands that we conform to His will and that we desire what He desires, for He has made us and we have not made Him. And that is why I say that men will always run to images because there's something comfortable about them, you know? They're not very threatening. There's something that we can control. There's something that we can have power over. No images of God are to be made, though. And neither are we to make earthly, images of earthly things to represent God. Both approaches are incapable of telling the truth regarding God, but will always tell a lie, leading to false beliefs concerning His nature. So what about images of Jesus? Were any of you thinking about that? What about images of Jesus? Should we have them? This is actually a controversial question. It didn't used to be so controversial among Protestants and the Reformed. In times past, most Protestants stood against uh, the use of, of, of images of Christ and of other men in worship. They stood firmly against Rome and their practice to use images in worship of Christ and of others. But today, few Protestants even stop to ask, should we make images of Jesus? Some will say, no, never. Others will say, no, certainly not for use in worship, but perhaps for other purposes. And still others will say, yes, it is permitted, for nowhere do the Scriptures say, thou shalt not make an image of Jesus. In fact, those who are of this last opinion will reason in this way, since the Son of God took on flesh in the Incarnation, we are therefore free to make images of Him, for He is the image of the invisible God. But let's think about this for a moment. I have a series of questions for you concerning the question, should we make images of Jesus? One, I'll ask you this, is Jesus to be worshipped? Is Jesus to be worshipped? Yes. He is. He is to be worshipped. God the Father is to be worshipped through faith in Him, but Christ also is to be worshipped. Two, do we worship the person of Jesus Christ according to His divinity or His humanity? Answer, though these two distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, we do not worship Jesus because He is human, but because He is divine. We worship the one person, Jesus Christ, but we worship Him because He is divine. Three, do images of Jesus communicate truth regarding the object of our worship, or do they tell a lie? Answer, they most certainly tell a lie. They do with Jesus, who was and is the Son of God incarnate, the very same thing that images of God do. They misrepresent Him. They limit Him. They mislead. 
And it's not difficult to demonstrate that images of Jesus are misleading. For one, no one knows what Jesus looked like. Do you realize that? No one knows what He looked like. No one who saw Jesus in the flesh decided to draw pictures of Him or to carve statues. And I would like for you to think about that for just a second. Why didn't they do this? Why didn't, didn't the early church, that is to say, uh, those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus in His life, death, burial, and resurrection, why did they not draw pictures of Him or carve statues? Why was this not one of their primary things to do? If it was so important for the church to have images of Jesus to remember Him by, then why was this not a priority for them? They did not paint or carve, brothers and sisters. What did the eyewitnesses of Jesus do? They wrote. And I cannot help but think that the second commandment had something to do with this fact. We don't have any pictures of Jesus dating back to the first or second centuries, so no one knows what He looked like. This means that every picture you have ever seen of Jesus is false. He does not look like the picture. Some are probably more accurate than others. It is all but certain that He did not have blonde hair and blue eyes. But all are wrong. No, not one of them is correct. And yet, we have just confessed that Jesus is to be worshipped, isn't He? And so, here these images are misrepresentations of this object of our worship, Jesus the Christ, who is both God and man too. And I think this is even more significant. Every picture of Jesus is misleading because a picture can only portray His human nature and not His divine nature. And yet we know that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. That is Lenin Baptist Confession 8.2. And I may ask you, how do we know this? How do we know this to be true? That This thing that I just confessed concerning Jesus and His nature, how do we know this to be true? How do we know that in Christ there were Two natures, human and divine. I may ask you, did any of you learn that, that thing that I have just confessed from looking at an image? Of course not. Of course you did not learn it by looking at an image. Because an image is incapable of communicating this truth concerning Jesus the Christ. We know this to be true from the Word of God alone. From the Word of God alone. So you are recognizing a common theme, I hope. How can we come to know and worship God in truth? Through the Scriptures or through images? We say, only through the Scriptures. It is only God's Word to us that accurately conveys who God is. The infinite and eternal One who is unbounded in any way. And... How can we come to know and worship Christ in truth? Is it through the Scriptures only or through images? We say, through the Scriptures only. Only the Word of God can reveal to us the truth concerning Jesus the Christ. So what is my view regarding images of Christ? It is this. Certainly they are never to be used in worship. Never should we pray to them or to God and Christ through them. This is a very clear violation of the second commandment. And concerning images of Jesus in movies, in manger scenes, in children's story Bibles, or hanging on, on the wall of your home, um, I would urge you, brothers and sisters, uh, 
to think very, very carefully about them. My convictions have changed over the years, leading me to say that I will not have them in my home. I will not. Jesus will not be appearing in the manger, in fact, at Christmas time. But we will read the scriptures concerning the birth of Christ, and we will talk all about Him in our home. And I would urge you, of course, to come to the same conclusion, but we'll also acknowledge that godly men and women do disagree on this point of application. So how will we teach our children and others about Jesus then, if not with pictures? How will we do it? Brothers and sisters, we are to teach and preach the whole truth concerning the whole Christ from the Word of God. We are to say what the Scriptures say. We are to say things like this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Imagine trying to communicate that with an image. You couldn't do it. Or better yet, imagine trying to form an image that will not distort that truth, which is so beautifully conveyed to us in God's Word, Colossians 1, 15 and 16. And how are we to remember Christ and the work that He has accomplished for us, if not with pictures? You know, that is the argument. We use them to remember Jesus. We use them to remember what He has done for us. How are we going to do it then? How are we going to remember Christ and the work that He has accomplished for us, if not with pictures? Answer, we are to remember Him in the way that God has commanded through word and sacrament. God has given to us baptism and the Lord's Supper as visible signs which remind us of the work that Christ has accomplished and done for us. And it is the Word of God that explains their meaning. We are to go to the Scriptures, brothers and sisters. You are probably recognizing by now that this comes back to the question, how is God to be worshipped? Is, is it the normative principle of worship that we are to adopt? You remember the one that says we are free to worship as we wish, provided that God's Word does not directly forbid a certain thing? Or is it the regulative principle of worship that we are to adopt, the one that says we are free to worship God in the way that He has commanded, not more and not less? It is this second view that is ours. We are free to worship God as He has commanded in His Word. We are not to add to the worship of God according to our own wisdom and imagination. We are to submit ourselves to God's Word. We are to obey it, even in worship. As we begin to move now to a conclusion, I would like to briefly address Baptist Catechism 57, which asks, What are the reasons annexed or added to the second commandment? The second commandment is, in brief, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, but in verses 5 through 6 of Exodus 20 and in verses 9 through 10 of Deuteronomy 5, we find that God states his reason for this commandment with the words, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, those words there are not the substance of the second commandment itself, but there they are reasons given for the second commandment. These are added uh, words that are, that are giving reason to the second commandment. And our catechism is right to summarize the reason annexed to the second commandment in this way. The reasons added to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, His propriety in us, and the zeal He hath for his, to, to His own worship. In other words, God says, no images. And He does this because He is 
a jealous God, etc. Uh, he is a jealous God because He is sovereign over us. He has propriety in us and He has zeal for His own worship. Now, some are disturbed by the words, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Have there, those words ever bothered you? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is a jealous God. Many assume that all jealousy is sinful, and so it sounds very strange to hear God say, I am a jealous God. But is all jealousy sinful? No, it's not. Just as there is a difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, so too there is a difference between righteous jealousy and unrighteous jealousy. Jealousy is sinful when it is covetous. Do you understand that? Jealousy is sinful when it is covetous. It is sin to be jealous of what others have, wishing that it belonged to you. And that is how we tend to use the word in our day and age. When someone is said to be jealous of something, it means that they're looking at what someone else has and and wanting it for their own. And of course, that is sin. It is sin because it is covetousness. But it is right to be jealous for what is yours. It is right for you to be jealous for what is yours. If I say to you, I am jealous for my wife's faithfulness, I have not just confessed sin to you, have I? No, I have not. Nor have I claimed that she has sinned in any way. I have only said to you, she is mine and I am hers and I am eager to keep it that way. I'm very eager to keep it that way. I'm jealous for my wife in that sense, her faithfulness. The thought of it being different angers me and rightly so. Now, Even righteous jealousy like this can overflow its proper and reasonable bounds and become a consuming passion, so beware of that. But our God is not driven by passions, and neither is He jealous for things that are uh, are not rightfully His. His jealousy is not like ours. His is perfectly right. His is perfectly pure. So what is God said to be jealous for? What is God jealous for? What thing that is rightfully His does He wish to have? The answer is, worship from His creatures. So just as it is right for a husband to be jealous for his wife's faithfulness, and a wife to be jealous for her husband's faithfulness, so too it is right for God to be jealous to have worship from His creatures. This is right. Or to put it in a more shocking way, God would sin were He not jealous for the worship of His name. Have you ever thought about that? It is only right that He be worshipped, and it is a great evil when He he is not, for, for He is God and we are His creatures. And this is especially true of those whom He has redeemed. We owe Him worship, brothers and sisters. We, go, we, we owe God worship. It is wrong when we do not give it to Him. He is jealous for it, and His jealousy is pure. It is perfectly right. We owe Him Worship that is true, for He is our Creator and Redeemer. He is sovereign over us. He is our Lord and King. He has propriety in us, meaning He has the right to call us to conform to His will. And He is zealous to be worshipped. Again, this is right. It is right for God to have as His highest aim the glory of His name, for He is God. For you to have as your highest aim the glory of your name is wrong. It is sin, because you are not God. But for God to have as His highest aim, the glory of His name, is perfectly right for Him to do anything else but that. For Him to desire anything else than that would be wrong. For He is God. He deserves our worship and our praise. So what is forbidden in the second commandment? The second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in His word. And again, what are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? 
The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, His propriety in us, and the zeal He hath to His own worship. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, as your people, we pray that you would make us eager not only to give you worship, but to give you worship that is right and true and according to your word. Father, if some of this that was stated this afternoon is shocking to the hearers, I pray that you would help them with it. Lord, give us a passion to worship you correctly and help us understand what you mean when you say that you are a jealous God. We thank you that you are. It is right that you are. You are owed worship. You deserve it, O Lord. It is right that you want it for yourself, for you are God. You are the Creator. We are your creatures. And so move us, O Lord. Move all people, but especially move those whom you have redeemed in Christ Jesus to be eager to come to you and to worship you sincerely. Lord's Day by Lord's Day, in the assembled congregation, but also in our private lives. Above all else, may our desire be to glorify you and to enjoy you forever and ever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.